Good evening and welcome to eConversations. I'm Dan Sauter, the host um, with the Johnson Center here at Troy University. Our guest tonight on eConversations is a distinguished economist. His name is Dr. Ben Paul. He's from Texas Tech University. He's the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech and an old uh, friend of many of us here at the Johnson Center. Uh, Dr. Paul has been a very prolific economist over his uh, approximately 10 years in the profession. He's written over 50 uh, articles and in book chapters, and he's edited several different uh, books. Let's see, we can have a slide here to show a little bit of his activities. Uh, and welcome, Do Dr. Paul. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Sutter. It's good to be with you here today. <laughs> Uh, well, ben is also a, a, a research associate or with the Independent Institute out in California. He's written a, a couple of previous books with the Independent Institute on uh, economic development, a book called Making Poor Nations Rich, and then also on uh, the housing crisis. But tonight, uh, Dr. Paul is Ben. Well, Ben is here to uh, talk about. Yeah, it would be too weird to call each other doctor this whole time. <laughs> I guess so. And talk about a, a new book that he has forthcoming with uh, Cambridge University Press on sweatshops. And it's uh, sweatshops improving lives and economic growth. And it's a topic that he's done a lot of research on over the years. Uh, and so to get started here, why don't you tell us a little bit about what exactly is a sweatshop? I mean, we hear that people refer to that term all of the time. Mm -hmm. Is there some kind of a, a official definition of what constitutes a sweatshop? Okay, well, there is no like real official definition of a sweatshop. There's general characteristics of something that becomes protested as a sweatshop, but exactly what the line is between you know, lower wage manufacturing in the third world versus something that is protested as a sweatshop in a pejorative sense uh, isn't a, a bright, clear line. But generally, when we talk about a sweatshop, it's a place that has extremely low wages, at least by US standards. So yeah, you got a cartoon there, right, of uh, looks like a small brain boss with uh, his employee there in the sweatshop saying, look on the bright side. No one will ever mug you for your paycheck. Uh, this is the kind of notion that the sweatshop workers are paid very little. Of course, the comparison that's being made, though, is to wages in the United States, mm -hmm. so they're paid very little by that. The other characteristics that would go into this is generally like long hours, sometimes unpredictable hours, poor working conditions generally, so that could mean uh, health and safety risks, so it could be like long-term health of you know particles in the air that'll cause later complications, or it could be safety on the spot of getting hurt in the machines. Uh, sometimes it might be complaints of, you know, they don't even get bathroom breaks, or you know, their lunch break is very short. These are just generally like unpleasant working conditions. Mm -hmm. Taken as a basket, these are the type of things you find at sweatshops. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes child labor included um, among these. Uh, but exactly where the dividing line is is a bit blurry. In my own research, what I've decided that, that, of how I deal with it is uh, I'm willing to consider anything a sweatshop that people protest as a sweatshop. So it's not me as an economist defining, well, this is the objective standard. Because then it's kind of like, well, you pick the line. Maybe you pick the line a certain way. Right. My line is just, if protesters in the United States or other developed countries have said, that's a bad sweatshop, and I say, OK, well, let's look at that then and see the economics behind it. So you know, this, uh, you hear companies like Nike is one of the ones that often get protested against as uh, operating sweatshops. Does Nike actually own these factories in, uh, in other countries, or how, how are they operated? So 
typically it's not actually the U.S. company or the multinational company who employs sweatshop workers. Usually, but not all the time, but usually what the situation is, is that there's a domestic subcontractor in a poorer country who works on contract to produce X number of garments for a particular production line in the United States. And that sometimes these U.S. producers then switch between which subcontractors they're going to use. But it's usually the case that it's not actually owned by the multinational, it's subcontracted from them. Okay. Now, <clears throat> now people protest these sweatshops for a, a number of conditions, one of which you mentioned some of the, the health and safety conditions, but also the level of pay. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they argue that people in, in these sweatshops are not getting paid a, a reasonable uh, a level to be able to support themselves. And that uh, conversely also then the com companies like, for instance, Nike might be making excessive profits on the backs of sweatshop labor. Are, are these claims true? There's lots of bizarre claims that are made out there. You'll, people have probably seen like a graphic where they're like, look, it costs you know $4 in labor to make a Nike shoe that sells for 100 and there's like, uh, implicitly they're saying Nike, Nike's making 96 bucks on this. But of course Nike pays Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods and all sorts of other people to create brand value in people's minds mm -hmm. that actually comes off that. So these companies are usually not making, at least after you adjust for risk where sometimes these investments go bad, uh, quote, excessive or abnormal profits off of this. Uh, but the, the point on wages more is that you know, wages in sweatshops are determined much like wages in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's bidding between employers. So in most cases, it's not just that Nike is the only game in town. There's multiple subcontractors who can hire factory workers. The most they're willing to pay a worker is how much revenue they create for their firm. So if they can create $2 an hour of value, the max an employer will pay them is $2 an hour. Of course, the employer would like to pay them zero and get $2 an hour in profit. but of course, the existence of other firms who could hire them doesn't allow them to pay zero. So your lower bound is whatever the next best alternative for that worker is. If it's not Nike for, you know, a dollar fifty, it's Reebok at a dollar forty. Mm -hmm. So that limits how much Nike can go down on their wages for them. Um, and that uh, what we find when we look across countries, generally the variation in wages across countries, about eighty-five percent of it is explained by differences in worker productivity, how much value they can create per hour. So it's really that upper bound, getting these workers to be more productive. Well, here we have a, a slide to sort of indicate uh, uh, the, the level of wages in some of these countries. And I guess it will also show some of the countries across the world where the sweatshops are, are, are common. Yeah, so all of these countries that are listed up here are all places where sweatshops have been reported in, in U.S. news sources. And it's looking here, and it's while we quote wages, and you know, $2 an hour seems really low by U.S. standards, or even worse, you know, 20 cents an hour or something like that. The relevant comparison is how do these compare to the other jobs in the economies where these workers live? Mm -hmm. And what you see in these countries, I mean, Bangladesh is an extreme example, and I guess one we'll probably talk about later, but you know, almost 85% uh, of the population lives on less than $2 a day. Right. And more than 50% on less than $1 a day. So when we see sweatshop workers in Bangladesh, often what they're making sounds really low by U.S. standards, but it's a lot better than what a lot of their countrymen are making. And the same is true in most of these countries where sweatshops operate. You see some of the Latin American countries, the, the ad, by the way, the $2 a day and $1.25 standard, this is, you know, a, a World Bank right. style international definition of poverty that people so use. So $2 a day is just like 
poverty and or other, uh, level of poverty in like the dollar twenty-five or dollar a day is like extreme poverty, right? Right, and these things, of course, are all adjusted for the different purchasing power that you mm -hmm. have between countries. So it gives you a rough approximation of, of standard of living. Okay. Um, and what you see, you know, in some of them, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, you know, it's more modest. Uh, Ten, twenty percent of the population are under two dollars a day. But some of these, there's a whole lot of poverty there. Right. Certainly, Haiti and Cambodia and Vietnam. Very high levels of, of, of poverty. Yeah, of, of real abject poverty, yes. not like the poverty that we talk about existing in you know, the United States or Alabama. Mm -hmm. Those people in poverty here would be considered wealthy in most of these countries. Right. And so what you've done is looked at uh, the, the actual wages. In your, in your research, you've gone ahead and looked at some of the, the wages in, uh, in, that are being paid in these sweatshops. Yeah, so for comparison purposes. So what we did is actually for each country, we looked at every instance we could find reported in the press of a sweatshop there and what they said the wages were and made the same purchasing power conversion that we just did on the mm -hmm. last slide and then average it out and say in the average protested sweatshop, how much do you make per day in these countries? And so like Bangladesh, you might hear, you know, oh, it's horrible. The workers only average a little over $2 a day working in a sweatshop. Well, remember that 50% of the, po oh, no, it was like 80% of the population in Bangladesh lives on less than $2 a day. Right. So these are like the wealthy 20% of workers in Bangladesh, and we're protesting that here in the United States. So these, in Bangladesh, the, some of these jobs are good jobs. Yeah, you know, these are the, the average person would be saying, that's a job I'd like to go uh, try to get. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think it's around 4 million uh, garment worker employees in, in Bangladesh, and these are jobs that people want to, to get into. Um, and in some of these other countries, remember where the poverty was lower there, Costa right. Rica, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, now you're looking at 10, 11, and one of them almost $18 per day that they're making in these sweatshops. You know, there's like a famous case uh, from uh, the mid-90s where a guy, Charlie Kiernigan, the National Committee of Labor, brought a, a girl on a television show like this to confront Kathy Lee Gifford and said, mm -hmm. you're exploiting this worker. You're only paying her, I think it was 30 cents an hour or something like that for her work in Bangladesh, in, the, uh, in the, uh, the Honduran sweatshop that she's from. Wendy Diaz was the girl's name. And Kathy Lee exploded into tears on the show. That would be some drama for your show here. <laughs> get, it, get crying in the show. Uh, and she exploded into tears and apologized. But when you actually looked at it, she was making more than $2 a day, more than $1 a day. A huge chunk of that population wasn't. And it turns out, actually, she was earning about 30% higher than the average national income in her country. And she was only 15 years old. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be that girl that we're crying for. It should be the number of people that are trapped in real poverty that is even worse in that country. Um, and that's basically what we find as we look across all of these examples, really. And as, uh, as the garment industry uh, firms locate in the countries, I mean, that's got to have a spillover effect on other wages uh, in these countries as well, right? Yeah, I mean, this is actually, you know, it's part of the process of, of economic development, right? What brings higher standards of living is increased capital, better technology, at least these are the proximate causes of it. And when these factories come in, that's what they bring with them is more capital into these economies, better technology. These workers then demand more goods and services from other people, so you create employment uh, to service the workers in these factories. And this is part of, this is kind of like your, you know, your first rung on the ladder out of poverty is you start taking these steps up. And that's exactly what these factory jobs are, are doing. Now, another element of uh, controversy sometimes over, uh, especially textile jobs leaving the United States over time, has been the, the fact that uh, workers in the United States or the industries in the United States, textiles, for instance, you simply can't compete with uh, the levels of, of wages of workers in these other countries. And so another element of this whole debate is, well, if 
you know, Nike and other com companies didn't uh, have these, they didn't take advantage of sweatshop labor. They'd have to maybe operate uh, factories in the United States. You know, they would have to be paying American job uh, workers, and American workers get higher uh, good jobs as well. Yeah, I absolutely hate it when people say stuff like this, and I know you don't mean it. You're just provoking me here, but it's like the. The, the global race to the bottom. These countries just leave the United States and go to cheap labor, and if that labor gets too expensive, they go to somewhere cheaper. They make mm -hmm. it sound like they're leaving the country impoverished that they just left. No, it's the process of development that's happening. U.S. labor has become so produ productive that it can be used for other things instead of low-skill garment manufacturing. So as a result, to bid that labor away from the other things it could be doing in the U.S., you have to pay higher and higher wages. That means we should be using these workers for the other things if we can get workers in other economies who don't have as good or alternatives where they could create as much value to do the low-skill stuff for us. So it's basically, I mean, think of actually the migration of textiles in the United States. It started actually where I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. Lawrence, Massachusetts. I was in Haverhill, the next city. This is the heart of the Industrial Revolution in the United States. That's where we were producing it. What happens around a little after turn of the century? It starts moving from high wage, high income area, or relatively high wage at the time, high income area in New England, down into the south. Right. Textile production here where wages were lower. New England didn't suddenly become impoverished. It's because New England got more productive and had better uses for its labor then. Mm -hmm. They moved down here. Now we've seen the process as it leaves here. 50 years ago, where did it go? It was Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Japan. Well, what happened there? The productivity went up. The workers got employed at better jobs, at better wages, and better working conditions. And eventually, it was no longer profitable for firms to be able to hire that high productivity labor away from these other uses. So it's not like they go in and like rape and pillage a place, leave it poor, go to the next one. It's the place grows wealthy in this process. So it becomes too wealthy, basically, to do this production itself. So somebody else gets on. It's actually, it's that ladder, right? It's you graduate to a higher rung of the ladder, mm -hmm. and then they go somewhere yeah. else and let someone jump on the bottom rung. And actually, I mean, I always try to tell people, like, it's a good thing when, when companies have to leave the United States because our wages are too high, because that means our people are productive and in demand. Yeah. This you know, it is, it, it'll be great for uh, Haiti if one day companies have to start leaving Haiti because labor is too expensive there, because that would mean that, you know, the Haitians aren't working for one or two dollars a day. They can be making a, a lot more than that. Yeah, that would be great. I don't think it'll be happening anytime soon in Haiti, but uh, the, the best way for Haitians to get economic development is usually to leave Haiti and come to the United States, and then your income increases by a factor that will never take place in Haiti, given the bad institutions that are there. Now, sweatshops uh, aren't unique to the third world in, in, at this point in time in, in our economic history. I mean, they, they used to be common in the United States as well, right? Right, yeah. I mean, this, uh, where I grew up, what we had turn of the 20th century there would largely be categorized as sweatshop jobs. In the United States, the process of industrialization where you go from like pre-industry to post-sweatshop mm -hmm. looks at something like a 120-year process maybe, depending on you, where you want to date the end of sweatshops. In Britain, it was probably about a 150-year process because Britain started going through it before us. But you look in countries today, the process happens much more quickly. So if you think about you know, those, the Asian countries that I just mentioned, it was like a generation and a half for Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, those countries to go from you know, abject poverty right. to first world living status. And the reason it happens quicker now is because there's so much more capital and technology in the world. If you get your institutions right, and by that I mean basically protect private property rights, give people economic freedom, respect the rule of law, capital comes in, technology comes in, and you grow much faster. When Britain was doing it, it all had to be created anew. 
So it was a slower process. The United States actually benefited from the first wave of globalization and industrialization, because where did we get our technology? We stole it, actually, from Great Britain to start with. It was people who had to memorize the plans of the machinery and the factories. Then they came, and originally it was in Rhode Island, built the first reproduction of that, and then spread. And eventually we started doing more of our own technology. But initially mm -hmm. it was copying British technology. Where did we get a lot of the investment? It was actually a lot of British capital that came and invested in the United States during this time period. So we benefited from this. So some people are like, well, it has to be homegrown. Well, nonsense. The United States did it faster than Great Britain precisely because it wasn't all homegrown. And those Asian tigers did it faster than the US because there was so much more capital and technology. Mm -hmm. Then witness like India and China today and how fast they're growing as they're improving their institutions. They got a long way to go. I guess you did an episode right. about India and central planning recently. But, yes. but they've come a long way. And uh, it can happen much quicker today. Well, certainly, you, know, you mentioned like Taiwan and, and South Korea, which you, you know, not that long ago were the places that, country, uh, that companies were leaving for. Yeah, and I mean, some of your, your viewers can probably remember when they were younger of like, when they'd kind of snicker like made in Taiwan or made it means it was like a junk toy or some trivial mm -hmm. product. That's not what we think of today when we see made in Hong Kong or something like that. We think Taiwan, Hong Kong, high quality, high tech production because they went through this process of development. Mm -hmm. Another uh, charge against uh, sweatshops is that they use child labor and mm -hmm. people uh, object to the, the use of, of the employment of children in, in these sweatshops that alternatively they could be going to school or they were against child labor. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, how, what, what does your research show about uh, child labor in sweatshops? Yeah, so we should want to see an end to child labor but we need it to come about because people don't need child labor. So children work not because their parents are mean or, or we're exploiting. The children work because their families are desperately poor and need income from the children to help survive. Mm -hmm. The best way to get rid of child labor is to raise incomes in those countries. When countries grow and experience development, child labor disappears. So the, this graph that you just put up here shows the percent of children aged 10 to 14 working in countries, and we, and we divide them by income group here. So the richest fifth of countries way on the left, mm -hmm. you basically can't see a line coming up. And that's incomes over about $24,000 per year. Children don't work. The next group is also essentially not that. It's not till you get down to this, this middle group of countries, and there, we're talking income around $11,000 is the cutoff. Mm -hmm. You get about 5% working. But same as you go down, th it's really just this, this last group, the poorest fifth of the country. So we're talking places with incomes between $600 and $2,000 ballpark. That's like where year. child labor, uh, per year, yes. yes. That's where child labor is prevalent. So it's almost a third of children in those countries work. And it's be precisely because they're poor, they need everybody working in order to get a little bit of income there. Mm -hmm. um, and what we see then, and as countries grow and go through this process, is in these individual child labor plummets. I mean, it used to be common in the United States to have child labor. Mm -hmm. uh, so those factories we were talking about in, in New England uh, would employ some children. Massachusetts, actually, it's not like some people say, well, we passed labor laws. Labor laws mm -hmm. got rid of child labor. Bogus. Labor laws came in, and they basically codified the disappearance of child labor that was already happening. So you, uh, Massachusetts passed the first child labor law in the United States. Uh, and what it said was, children under 12 years old aren't allowed to work more than 10 hours per day in a factory. That was in the <laughs> 1840s. That's basically not a restriction on child labor at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you get around turn of the century, there's still no national law about this. Individual state laws have been mm -hmm. passed. But as economists have studied it, what they said is basically the laws had no effect on children working or in school attendance mm -hmm. or compulsory attendance law. Basically, they were codifying what already was happening at very low levels, or they were being ignored. 
Uh, it's not until 1938 that you actually get uh, child labor legislation on a national level here. And by that time, the United States income, updated to today's dollars, inflation adjusted, is about $10,000. So we were about. Remember, yeah. right there. Exactly. It's when you cross that $11,000 barrier that it disappears. Mm -hmm. So it was just codifying what the process of development was doing already. And so how does the, the you know, how is exactly does this uh, child labor go away? I mean, the parents are interested in trying to actually send their children to school, and once they're, start, once they're able to earn enough money themselves, they're able to then afford to take their children out of factories and, and make sure they get educated instead? Or Yeah, that's basically the, the process. But mind you, by the way, not all the children working don't go to school. Mm -hmm. Actually, most of the children working in the world also attend school. Okay. Um, so they're not strictly substitutes for each other. It's also the case when we try to get rid of, so like we're abhorred by like, oh, I don't want to buy product made with child labor. Well, most children don't work making export products for the United States. In these countries where sweatshops are, it's a tiny fraction of child employment that's in manufacturing. The vast majority of child employment is in agriculture. Mm -hmm. In agriculture, they don't build the same skills that leads to higher incomes in the future. Uh, they actually have a higher rate of workplace injury in agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, the other alternative, the second most common, is, is domestic services, so like household chores okay. of... Uh, you know, cleaning, cooking, that type of stuff. Again, not a place where you're building a lot of human capital and skills for the future. And what we find is if you get rent of child jobs in export manufacturing, they don't just go to school all of a sudden and, you know, act like the kids in the United States. They go to a less remunerative uh, field of employment because their families still mm -hmm. need the money. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also issues that are raised regarding uh, safety uh, mm. in, in sweatshops. This is a, a headline back from uh, famous uh, Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire in the United States in, in 1911. Right. And uh, I think 150 people died in a New York sweatshop. Right. Uh, which is among in the United States often regarded as, as a, a catalyst for a lot of both building safe, you know, building code and, and on the job uh, safety regulation mm -hmm. and to, to move against sweatshops. And then this was a, a, a a factory that collapsed, well, was a, I guess it was a multi-purpose building that, that collapsed in Bangladesh earlier this year. Right. I believe around 1,100 people died. And so there are safety concerns that, uh, you know, these sweatshops simply don't have the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of safety uh, features that we do in, in the United States. And so therefore, you know, we almost, perhaps we as American consumers have blood on our hands if we're supporting the uh, sweatshops where we don't have the same kind of, of uh, safety as in the United States or Europe. Yeah, so no, you don't have blood on your hands. So take a step back for a second. Okay. But as tragic as this is, this doesn't mean that overall the sweatshop industry for Bangladesh is bad. So 1,100 people dying there, of course, is tragic, but roughly 4 million are employed in Bangladesh, bettering their lives in factories. So it's a risk that's taken. And what we find is when people are poorer, they're more willing to bear more risk. So if you think about like you know your own wages or whatever, you get some of it in the form of money compensation and some in the form of you know, the quality of your job, the safety at your job, the comfort of it, which is at a very high level in the United States but it's because our total package of compensation is so high. If you're desperately poor, now a business is largely indifferent. Let's say I'm gonna pay you $2 an hour. A business doesn't care whether they pay you $2 an hour in cash or a buck 50 in cash and invest 50 cents per hour and increase safety for you. To them, it's a cost as a cost as a cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, to some extent, they actually would be biased towards a little bit of safety because they don't want you to chop your fingers off every few minutes and they don't want their factory to fall down. Right. Uh, so it's not like the owner intended for this factory to fall down. He certainly came out worse as a result of it as well. Um, 
But that means if the employer is largely indifferent, what drives that mix of compensation constrained by what the total amount is going to be is the preferences of the employee. Mm -hmm. So think about this. Put in, your, in the context of these workers, if you're desperately poor and trying to feed and clothe your family, remember Bangladesh was the poorest country you saw up there right. too. You want the vast majority of your compensation in money so that you can feed, clothe, shelter your family. As your income goes up, your productivity goes up, you want to invest more in safety. Now obviously the workers who died in there after the fact wished their compensation package had been different and they had greater safety, but would be mistaken to take from that that we should therefore mandate higher safety in all the Bangladesh factories because mm -hmm. ex ante, you know, ahead of the time, the workers would prefer more of their compensation in money and they take the risk that they might be in one of these tragic situations. And the building code stuff is not unlike, you know, you brought up the Triangle Surtways factory fire. We did not have the same type of safety standards in factories in the United States when we were at the level of development in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. Much like the child labor legislation, most of it comes in in the progressive era when we're already translating out of that level of risk in the factories. Uh, and when it goes in advance of it, much like in Bangladesh, Bangladesh has factory regulations that are largely unenforced and ignored. Mm -hmm. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire is the same thing. There were standards there, too, that were ignored. And when increased standards were put in after the fact, they were largely ignored. It's not till you actually transition past that stage of development where employers already have to do it that we put in more comprehensive safety standards. I mean, think about like uh, the real safety standards, the national ones in the United States. Now it's like OSHA. That doesn't come till 1970. The United States in 1970 is many multiples richer than what these sweatshop countries are today. It doesn't mean these laws are necessarily a good thing when we get them. It just means as long as they're codifying what the market's development process is already doing, we don't get big negative effects. But if we tried to put the United States laws today on the United States of 1870, would still look like the United States of 18, probably 50, mm -hmm. uh, of being a poor place where people die much younger um, and we don't have the ability to do a television show like this. Right. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, a lot of these children been, uh, were working in agriculture before that, and agriculture certainly is not a, a low-risk uh, endeavor either. As you know, if, if you have friends who grew up on farms, many of them are missing fingers or have suffered injuries in, in, in uh, farm accidents as well. So mm -hmm. it's not like they were living in complete safety until they went into to starting to work in some of these sweatshops. Yeah, some people like forget that the history of the world is one of poverty, disease, early death. So they've had this picture like until these factories came that they were living some idyllic life in agriculture and the forest. No, they were desperately poor. There's a reason why when the factories come, people flock to them. It's because it's the first step out of getting out of that poverty that is still unfortunately prevalent in so much of the world and, and used to cover the entire world. Mm -hmm. Now you've visited a few sweatshops uh, during the years in which you've been working on uh, researching sweatshops as well. So I mean, what do you find like when you visit a sweatshop? Um, actually some of the ones I've visited I've been surprised at actually how good they are because notice nowhere in our conversation have I denied any of the bad conditions that are mm -hmm. in sweatshops. I say they're there but unfortunately when you try to mandate better conditions you end up making things worse by throwing them into worse alternatives. Uh, but what I've found, I've actually interviewed and surveyed sweatshop workers uh, more recently in Guatemala, and we asked them actually about this working condition stuff. Uh, and you know, if you just ask, actually, I can ask you, Dan, you work here at Troy. Would you like higher pay, Dan? Sure. Yeah, w would you like a nicer office? I have a pretty nice office, but it could be nicer. Right, you always say it. You know, the National Labor Committee would go in, they ask these workers, wouldn't you like higher pay? Isn't this pay too low? Yes. Just like any, but they don't ask the constrained question of would you give up some of your pay for 
better health and safety conditions, other things. So what I did is I went and I surveyed the workers there, asking them, would you be willing to give up pay, and if so, how much, for mandatory health insurance to be given to you, paid vacation time, uh, safer working environment, healthier working environment, basically all these characteristics. Mm -hmm. We get overwhelmingly, no, 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 no. Basically, I think it was a paid vacation was the highest thing that they wanted, and even there, 82% of them said no, they wouldn't give up a penny of wages for it. Basically, mm -hmm. the mix of compensation largely reflects their preferences constrained by the total amount that they're going to get paid in compensation. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's been an enjoyable uh, discussion. I wish we had a, another half hour or so to, to, to talk about this further, but uh, we've, we've come to the end of our time. I want to thank you all for viewing conversations this evening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you. Mm -hmm.